Welcome to the podcast of the Tuscola County Prevention and Recovery Coalition. I am your host, Adam Salgat. Today's topic is weeding through the myths of common marijuana misconceptions. To help us understand these myths is Allison Koch. Allison Koch is a certified health education specialist who has been working in the field of prevention for six years. Allison is passionate about supporting individuals and communities to help them become self-sufficient with their health through knowledge, perseverance, and celebration. In her spare time, Allison likes to hike, travel, and pet every dog she passes. Well, Allie, thanks so much for joining me today on the podcast. Uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit more about yourself and also about the work that you do for the Tuscola County Health Department as a health educator. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. So I'm a health educator. And what that means is I educate the community and people on health and the best ways to live their life. So choices they make today can obviously benefit their tomorrow. Um, I specifically work with, with students, with youth, teach a lot of social emotional skills, just how to deal with life. Obviously, we talk a little bit about alcohol, tobacco, and other drugs, sexual delay, just so they can really focus on becoming healthy, sustainable, happy individuals. Um, I also sit on a few coalitions, the Torque Coalition, which is what this podcast is <laughs> for. We work on um, helping the Tuscola community with prevention for substance abuse and also on the recovery side of um, substance abuse. And in my previous positions, I have worked with substance use prevention. So this really kind of holds near and dear to my heart. And why is that? Tell me a little bit about where this passion for um, helping communities and helping youth, and tell me where that comes from. I guess I, I don't really know. It kind of surprised me. I think part of it is growing up, I was always a very cautious person, and I wasn't really a typical, I guess, teenager. I always really thought about what I was doing and how that would affect me, so I guess I was pretty lame. <laughs> but it actually really helps me be authentic in, in how I educate you know, people. I just think it's really important that individuals be healthy and in in that way their communities can be healthy and self-sufficient you know we always want to be doing our best and making the best choices and being knowledgeable in those choices and sometimes people need a little bit of an extra nudge in that direction and so I'm all just about giving people the most you know up-to-date authentic information so then they can take that and then make decisions for themselves. I love the way you put that because education is very important and so before we step into the major, four major misconceptions of marijuana use, let's set the table a little bit about marijuana and what can you tell me about the marijuana plant and its uses? So marijuana, it is a very hot topic issue. Sure. But basically marijuana is, it's a product that's, that is derived from the cannabis plant. And that is one of the oldest crops known to humans. Um, it was used for like ritualistic purposes, spiritual purposes. However, we know it mostly because of the main ingredient in it called THC. And the, the long word is actually delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol. Well said. <laughs> we, I always have to like slowly break it down in my head. But that is a psychoactive ingredient. And when I say psychoactive, I mean it changes. It's mind-altering. So okay. um, 
basically any any drug Tylenol is psychoactive because it you know it works with our pain receptors. And the reason actually why THC works is because we have a chemical in our brain or a compound called anandamide, and that chemical structure actually looks very similar to the TH to the THC structure. And so they work together to create that feeling of euphoria that people feel when they take THC. This plant contains 500 other chemicals as well, but it also has 100 compounds that are chemically related to THC. Those are called cannabinoids. So marijuana has been around for a long time. And now though, the THC actually, in in the health field, we call it, it's not your grandpa's THC. Okay. Um, and we say that because back in maybe the 60s and 70s, the THC percentage was very low, maybe 2% to 4%. Nowadays, if, if you go to medical or recreational um, stores, they sell extracts or, or um, products that contain almost up to 94% THC. And they're creating, and the marijuana industry is creating hybrids. And so the, the effects of the higher THC obviously create a much stronger high. And so it's just a whole different kind of drug than it used to be. So even the Plants nowadays potentially are different. Oh, yeah. Like if you're growing your own, they could be quite different than what they were even in the 60s or 70s. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's scientists and researchers, and they're kind of like how we create, um, you know, genetically modified food. We create different apples, different oranges. The same thing as the marijuana plant. It has a whole bunch more THC than it used to. Gotcha. So over the years, though, marijuana has become legal. Mm -hmm. I know in 2014 it became the first state it became legal in was Colorado, uh, when did it become legal in Michigan? And tell me a little bit about what legal could mean and, you know, what that means. Yeah. So it was it was um, legal for, med- for medicinal uses in Michigan. And then in 2018, it was um, voted to become legal. So what that means is it's not a free-for-all. <laughs> so right, right. Um, you, I'm not going to get into the, you know, the, the nitty gritty, but it, the, legal, the, the legality of it means you can have a certain amount on you, yep. you can grow a certain amount, and certain people can sell it to certain other people. I think when it became legal in our brains, it kind of became, oh, well, it's, it's anyone can use it. It's not a bad thing. It's legal. Um, but that's not the case. And so that's kind of what this campaign is a little bit about, as well as we'll get more into what it really want, what it really is about. Right. Okay. Well, we will get into more depth than that. But you also made a note that I wanted to ask you about, about conducting scientific research on the drug. Uh, you said that this isn't legal under federal law. So it's still being looked at you know, just per state, you know, each state makes its own decision as to whether or not they want it to be legalized for commercial use, recreation use. And you said the fact that it's not legal under federal law makes it difficult to conduct scientific research. Can you talk a little bit about why that is and, you know, the benefit that that could have over the years if it were to change? Yeah, so marijuana has only been studied, you know, minimally. And that is not that helpful because there's a lot of things that a lot of people would like to know about marijuana. And because it is federally still classified as a class one drug, scientists are not able to research as extensively as they'd like to purely because a lot of um, research grants come from federal money. Gotcha. Um, so it's kind of tied up. So it's, it's you know, I know that right now I think they're looking at some form of legalization, maybe federally one day, but as of now, it is up to the states. And because of that, you know, even it's so, so interesting because people say, you know, how is it federally illegal, but legally in a illegal in a state? Right. And that's the um, 
they, I think the attorney general at one point said, you know, even though it is still illegal, it's legal in a state and we're really not going to do, we're not going to really pursue any charges unless it's something majorly wrong. And because of that, it's so interesting. So we know that it's legal in Colorado. We know that it's legal in Michigan. You cannot transport it between those two legal states because they're, you're going to be going over illegal and it's, you know, air you're flying it. So it's just really important that um, people understand that it's still federally illegal, even though certain states have legalized it. Gotcha. Gotcha. I know over the last three years of it being legal or um, commercial legal, I've certainly feel like it's been much more acceptable and it feels like it's a lower risk for people who choose to use it, especially with those in my, you know, 30 something age group. What about the public as a whole? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is an interesting concept. Uh, st- there, there are always a lot of questionnaires that that people do, adults and youth. Um, actually, there's a there's a risk assessment or a questionnaire that students do in seventh, ninth, and eleventh grade. It's called the MyFi Michigan Profile for Healthy Youth, and it asks students a range of questions from how comfortable they are at school to if they've ever used drugs. And then it also asks what the perceptions of drugs. And through the years, the perception of risk has decreased for marijuana. So basically, they don't see occasional marijuana use as a a danger. Gotcha. Um, And also, just public opinion has shifted considerably. So... A, a, a lot of Americans just perceive occasional marijuana use as having little risk in general. And there could be a number of reasons for that, but we do know that it is more widely accepted. And um, it could be because we started with the, the decriminalization of marijuana to the medicinal being legal, then to fully having it um, recreationally legal. So it sounds like with more people potentially seeing less risk and then the potential for more people using it, in your role at the county health department, it's important to you to educate people so they do know both sides of the coin, so they have as much information as possible, just like you talked about in the opening when you introduced yourself. You'd like to give people information so they can make their own decision, right? Yes. This campaign, it is not about don't ever use marijuana, because for a lot of people, marijuana can improve their quality of life when they have a debilitating disease. The point of this campaign is to educate people on what marijuana is and what it isn't, and then for them to make a knowledgeable choice on if that is something that they would like to pursue. The campaign is titled Weeding Through the Myths. Tell me how this came about. Tell me about those that are supporting you. And you did already cover the goal, but if there's anything else you'd like to add to that before we get started with the myths. So this campaign, it was funded and made possible by the Michigan Department of Licensing and Regulatory Affairs from the Medical Marijuana Operation and Oversight Grant. So how that works is the funds available to each county, because this um, funds are available to each county in Michigan, It's based on the proportion of the number of registry identification cards issued or renewed every single year. And so based on what on how on how many cards are renewed or reissued through each county, we're given funds for this outreach program. It's an outreach grant. So when I when I got the funds for this, I decided, okay, how do I want to go about this? There's a lot of there's a lot of different ways we could do it. And I started thinking, well, just throughout my career of working with students and and with the communities, there's a lot of misconceptions about marijuana. And I kind of want to make those more known because when people, again, know more information, they can make better decisions. 100% agree with that. So why don't we step into myth number one. Using marijuana helps treat morning sickness. 
luckily for my wife, we have three children and she didn't really struggle with any type of morning sickness. But I know uh, in talking to other women throughout the years that um, it can be quite severe and it could really, you know, mess up your day. And, and I can understand that you would look for a solution. Talk to me about why marijuana is not a good choice. Yeah. So when I say morning sickness, you mean, you know, I mean, nausea, vomiting, very uncomfortable, you know, and, and when, any, when any human is uncomfortable, we want to fix that and we want to feel better. Yep. And so I guess we'll start with how marijuana use how marijuana use works with nausea and vomiting. Again, it attaches to part to um, chemicals and compounds in our brain, and it will help cease that nausea and vomiting. It works great with um, chemo patients when they are getting cancer treatments because we know that chemo can cause nausea and vomiting. So obviously, when you have nausea and vomiting from being pregnant, that might also help with that. However, the risks greatly will outweigh the benefits. So the Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, or the THC, that causes the high or will help with the nausea and vomiting. But also, we know that whatever a mother, a pregnant mother does, or baby does as well, because of the, you know, the umbilical cord and just being inside the mother. They're connected. They, they, yeah. are, they truly are one. Yeah. So... There's no research confirming that marijuana use actually it, that marijuana use to treat nausea during pregnancy is a safe practice and it is not recommended. Obviously, more more research, like I've said in the beginning, is needed to show how it could impact the health of developing infants. But there are certain things that are known at this point. So, one of the big things is when you are obviously when expecting mothers are know that they're expecting, there is a great sense of wanting to protect that infant inside of you so they can grow up to be healthy, adjusted, wonderful human beings of the next generation. So we always want to consider that whenever you're using, you know, any type of drug while you're pregnant. So prenatal marijuana exposure. So what that means is when you are using marijuana while pregnant, that is just associated with a higher chance of that infant being placed in the neonatal intensive care unit when they are born for a, for a number of different reasons. Just like smoking uh, tobacco, smoking marijuana is associated with a lower birth weight. And some people might think, well, I don't really want to have a really big baby when I'm born because, you know, that's uncomfortable. Lower birth weight, um, means you know they're not going to be as fully developed potentially as they could have been. So that's not a good side effect. It also has associated with an increase of startle and tremors, altered sleep patterns, and obviously a preterm birth, which is problematic. Finally, it also then, so those are immediate uh, repercussions. And then yep. actually we need to think about, okay, what about down the road? What could that marijuana exposure do to a child down the road? Yeah, they're developmental. Yeah, they're developmental. Yep. Um, so one of them is de decreased executive functioning. So that is really important to be a functional human. Those are things like problem solving, um, sustained attention, and your short-term memory. So we do know through other studies that adults and teens who use marijuana have decreased executive functioning. So that is just kind of being connected to um, when you have prenatal exposure, what that could create down the road for an adult. Um, also increased behavioral problems, so impulsivity and hyperactivity. And because of that, that can be connected to lower academic achievement and lower satisfaction in life. Now, again, I wanted to say that there are still studies that need to be done, but these are what are coming out of current studies. Um, and obviously, when you're pregnant, you want to do the make the best possible choices for you and your baby. And... You, you definitely need to talk to a doctor if you're using marijuana and you plan on becoming pregnant or you are pregnant. Mm -hmm. Also, THC is transferred to uh, newborns through breast milk, just like 
alcohol. So that is something to be aware of as well. What is interesting is there was a, I think it was either a medical or a recreational store and there was a worker or someone who was recommending products to pregnant women mm. for nausea, which is completely out of their scope of practice. They're not yeah. doctors. That yeah. is very irresponsible. And so you, you always need to have all of the facts in your tool belt before you can make that decision. Like I said, I, as a parent of three little ones and been there at the hospital when they're born, uh, our first two, no complications at all. And our third one, everything went smoothly. But I can tell you as a parent, if you're thinking about keeping your child safe, that third child had a couple failed its first hearing test. So we immediately, like, you get worried and you think you're going to be there for days and you worry about the neonatal intensive care unit and all of these certain things. And this is a very small example of just that fear of taking care of your kid that exists when you have one. If you can control something like your ability or your use of marijuana while pregnant, that's something in your control, I would highly suggest you consider keeping it under control because it, it's going to, like she just explained, it could do so much more that you're going to worry about in the future. Yeah. And again, um, you know, morning sickness is no joke. So if you yeah. if that's something you're struggling with, this is something you need to talk to your doctor about. Exactly. And I'm not a doctor. And like I said, yeah, my neither wife, am I. <laughs> and, and, and like I said, my wife didn't go through too much of it. So personally, I don't have many solutions, but I can guarantee there's many solutions out there that a doctor could give you or to potentially help you that would be much safer than a potential of marijuana yeah. use. I mean, I work with a lot. I, I work with a family planning program in, in the Michigan, it's MIHP uh, Maternal Infant Health Program. So we work with a lot of, and WIC. So a lot of babies come through and I see a lot of um, of the of their brochures and, you, and the amount of, you basically can't take any medicine when you're pregnant because it could affect the baby from like Tylenol to to literally yeah, anything. It's very minimal. Yeah. Yep. And so when a baby is developing, they are super fragile, obviously. Um, and we're going to come back to the fragility of an, um, of an underdeveloped brain um, in one of the other myths. But, you know, they can't, they, they're not making that decision. So we need, so as, as pregnant mothers, you need to, you talk to doctors, um, get all the information you can, and just, you know, make choices based on that. Yep. Find, find solutions that are a bit safer. Mm -hmm. Ready to move on to myth number two? I am. I like this okay. one. All right. So myth number two, driving under the influence of marijuana isn't as dangerous as alcohol. Uh, in the few times in my life where I've taken marijuana or smoked marijuana, I should say, <laughs> I cannot imagine being behind a vehicle. It does not seem like the remote, like the smartest thing you could possibly do. So the fact that this is a myth that there are people out there who feel that way is very interesting to me. And I'll also say, I mean, their use might be different than my use. Everybody's different. I understand that. But uh, talk about where this comes from and tell me a little bit about it. So I just want to preface this by saying it also boggles my mind. We have come such a long way. And I think this is also just an, a thing that we need to kind of, you know, work a little bit better on. That is a, that is a, that is a crazy myth that I people are adamant. I drive better when I drive under the influence. I drive slower. Well, slower doesn't mean safer. <laughs> right. Um, Your reaction time, you're going to yeah. step into this. Your so, reaction time to other vehicles, to well, animals in the road. THC affects everyone. It is a mind-altering substance, and it works. And these are the few. These are the few of the things that it will do to your brain. 
So marijuana affects the parts of our brain that are required for safe driving. Basic, basic things. Your reaction time, your visual function, your tracking, motor skills, and our attention. So driving slower, which is self-reported by a lot of marijuana users, does not make for safer driving. So... I talked a little bit about this earlier, but the reason why THC even works in our brains is because of the chemical makeup. And the chemical structure of THC is very similar to a brain structure called anandamide. And that similarity allows the body to recognize THC and therefore change normal brain function. So anandamide, it will send chemical messages and that affects the areas of the brain that are influenced um, that influence memory, thinking, concentration, movement, coordination, sensory and time perception. So those areas are the cerebellum, which is at the base of the back of your skull. And the cerebellum is like one of the first things that develop in, 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 in utero. And that controls things like digestion, breathing, heart rate, things you have no control over. Um, but it also, anandamide and THC also affects the basal ganglia, and that regulates balance, posture, coordination, and reaction time. So these are all things that are pretty important for safe driving. Yeah, absolutely. So because of that structural and chemical changes cause, cause to the brain, driving under the influence is not safe and it's just dangerous. Um, it's irresponsible. And, and an interesting fact to, to know is that since recreational marijuana was legalized in Colorado, and, I, and I'm going to mention Colorado a lot because that was the first state to legalize it. Right, it's the state we would have the most data. Exactly. Right? There's been a lot of data um, on that. Traffic deaths involving drivers who tested positive for marijuana more than doubled from 55 in 2013 to 138 people in 2017. And a lot of people can say it's not related, but, you know, the science doesn't lie about that. Right. The fact is THC, just like alcohol, is a mind-altering drug, and it directly affects a part of your brain that is necessary for safe driving. And, and again, there are things that I should mention. THC, it attaches to fat stores, fat stores in our body. So THC can stay in your body for a few weeks. So if somebody was in an accident and they got a blood test and there were trace amounts of THC, that person might not be high. That could have been from a few weeks ago. But they are getting better now at performing blood tests and other tests that can determine if THC is new in the bloodstream. Gotcha. So it's a little bit more accurate. Yeah. Bottom line, it's not safe to use while you drive. And after alcohol, marijuana actually is the drug most frequently found in the blood of drivers who have been involved in vehicle crashes. Can you touch on at all how it is treated in the legal system, meaning um, if you're pulled over and you have trace amounts in your system, are you... Do you have a DUI? Very good question. Yeah, it's it's at, so um, driving under the influence. That's right. what it would be. Sorry. Driving under yeah, yeah. should it's, not take advantage of the fact that driving, people may know that. Yeah. yeah, driving while intoxicated, driving under the influence because it is um, influence. It is again just like alcohol. It is a drug and it changes the function of your brain while you're under the influence. Right. So you could potentially end up with DUIs from driving while high. Oh, yes. yeah. yeah, absolutely. Let's move on to number three. And I kind of said this about the second one, but it still holds true here for the third one. I find it pretty interesting as the myth reads, it's just marijuana. It's not really a drug. So <laughs> tell me why you think that myth has been created. Like, where, where do you think that kind of stems from, first of all? So I think, first of all, I want to say this is a part of the reason why I think I'm really interested in substance use prevention. I'm very interested in how the brain works, why it does what it does, and how things work with the brain. And I'm going to get into a lot about that in a little in a little bit. But I think that 
when I, I have taught many kids throughout the years, especially about mar- marijuana is always a hot, it was always a question asked. Yeah. Why is marijuana bad? Because in, and again, youth um, have misconstrued information, whether that comes from the media, which is a huge issue. Um, they know it's legalized. They see billboards for it. You know, in Bay City, you go to Bay City and it seems like every 100 feet there is a um, either recreational or medical marijuana storefront and they're always, the parking lots are always packed. So I, and also it comes from a plant. And so I think that people think that it's not really a big deal. And I always would get the question, well, what's worse, alcohol or marijuana? What's worse, heroin or marijuana? It's not really a black and white issue. The fact of the matter is every drug that is a psychoactive affects your brain and that has uh, consequences. Right. Again, the legal, when it became legal, it kind of created a shift and it became more ex- widely accepted. And because it's more, more widely accepted and Again, same with um, tobacco. I would I, I taught a program and I would ask kids a question. Do you think the majority of adults smoke cigarettes? And every single student said, yes, the majority of adults smoke cigarettes, when that's not the case at all. Right. And so when we perceive something that everyone does, we think it's not dangerous. Because if everyone does it, same with vaping. I mean, it was a huge thing. If everyone does it, what's a big deal? Um, and so that also is why it's be, it's been perceived as less of an issue. Um, and, you know, it's... Even if, even if they do think it's a drug, they think it's so minor that it's really not even an issue. Right. And especially when you're talking about youth, and I know you're about to get into this, it makes a big difference when you have an under, underdeveloped brain. Yes. And we're still developing, according to studies that I've heard and things I've, I know, into our early 20s, mid 20s, you know, our brain is still kind of developing. We're, we're learning and it's not fully formed. No. And this, this is the part that really is interesting to me. So marijuana is a drug. Any substance that has a psychoactive property, which is mind altering, is considered, a dr- is considered a drug. So from Motrin to heroin, those are both drugs. One obviously is helpful or it can be. I mean, obviously any drug has a potential to be abused. Sure. Um, so that is something I also want to clarify. Heroin is always going to be abused because there's no medical purpose for heroin. Motrin has a medical purpose, but you can still abuse it. But marijuana is included in that classification, and it really, truly can have permanent damaging effects, especially on the developing brain. Right. So here's when I'm going to get a little bit sciencey. <laughs> <laughs> um, marijuana use impacts how connections are formed in the brain. And our brain is still developing from the mid to the late 20s. And how it develops is from kind of the back to the front. Again, like I said earlier, the cerebellum, things by the base of your spine are the things developed first because we need that just for a basic existence. We need digestion. We need heart rate. We need, you know, connections in our brain. Muscle memory. Muscle, everything. And it kind of moves from the back to the front. And the very last thing to be developed in our brains is our prefrontal cortex, which is the very front, like right behind your forehead. And the prefrontal cortex is, funnily enough, the thing you need to be a functioning, well-adjusted adult. So things like time management, thinking about consequences to your actions, impulsivity. So you wonder why teens have a hard time with those kind of things. It's because literally their brain at that point is not there yet. They, they do not have that capability of thinking about the consequences to their actions or, or, or being impulsive. When brains are young, they have something called neuroplasticity. 
And that is the brain's ability ability to rewire and learn and strengthen connections. So for example, that's why a five-year-old can learn Spanish very, very quickly. When they learn something, their brain immediately acquiesces to that new rewiring. And so they learn it very quickly. It kind of is like, think of you are hiking and you want to go down um, a path that hasn't been a path before. You need to use you need to like break through all the weeds create a path and each time you go through that path it's going to be a little bit easier because you are now stepping over the weeds it's it's been done before and eventually it gets to be a very easy thing with young kids that that connection and that that pathway happens very quickly so it happens much faster so they'll clear the path much quicker and now it's just a really quick Yes, to, to get through it. When our brains are fully developed, it's a little bit it's a little bit harder to do those right. kind of things. Our brains have been there before, um, and we're not as we're not as able to quickly make those connections. So that that pathway building and connection is the same with drugs. When a when a teen uses a drug, it creates a pathway very quickly in their brain. Um, and drugs usually affect our reward pathway system, so they make us feel good. Um, And so people want to chase after that feeling. Eventually, it just creates a much bigger problem. But as soon as someone tries a new drug, a new connection is formed in the brain. So for example, 90% of adult smokers started before they were 18, which says a lot about that disinformation. If a 15-year-old tries a cigarette, it might take them only a few days to get addicted to nicotine. Whereas an adult who never smoked, maybe in their 30s, tried a cigarette, it might take them a lot longer to be addicted because that pathway is not as effective. It's as so interesting to think about that way because as an adult, I don't, you know, you, as a teenager, you don't think about that. Yeah. Like you're no. not thinking about it. No, of and, course not. Uh, but it's interesting that the science backs it up. Yeah. And that's, mostly. that's why with every drug, the younger you, you take that drug, like for example, a big, um, a big issue is, is marijuana a gateway drug? Tons of people say absolutely not. Tons of people say absolutely yes. When the answer is, it's kind of muddled. There's not really a yes or no. For some people, absolutely not. It's not going to be a gateway drug. But for other people, it might be. Again, marijuana, THC, it's creating a pathway in your brain. And THC specifically, is it's going gonna, it's gonna to mess with your reward pathway system, which I'm going to talk about. So the behavior of drug use will become reinforced in the brain when somebody starts using it. And that is, and that is from our brain's reward system pathway, which is dopamine. Dopamine is wonderful. We create it naturally. It actually is what kept us alive as a species (laughs) for a long time ago. We eat our favorite food. We feel great. Sure. We see our favorite human. We feel great. That's because that is dopamine being released, which is telling, reminding ourselves, you need to do this again. So say like a hundred, you know, whatever years, a million years ago, when we were just starting out as species, they would see pasture with food on it and they would eat that food and say, okay, well, I need, their brain would literally make them feel good. So then they would remember that place again. So dopamine is a really great way. It's for motivation. Um, It helps us feel good, but it's highly regulated. So our brain releases a little bit, but then it takes it back. When you do a drug, a whole bunch of dopamine gets released and that's what causes that euphoria, but your brain doesn't like that. So it's going to try to reel it back in, and that's why actually when, you're, when you come off of that high, you don't feel very good because your brain is trying to fight back and, and, and go back to normal. Interesting. After a while, your brain says, well, you're bringing in dopamine, so I don't need to make any anymore. So really interestingly, your brain will stop making dopamine or if stop making... Once you're maybe addicted. Yeah, sorry, once, once you're, you're addicted. Using- yeah, sorry, yeah. I'm getting ahead of myself. So once you're highly addicted, your brain will cease to make that dopamine. So that's what that that's what that addiction is. You you use a you use a drug and I'm getting way ahead of myself here. 
people wonder, you know, why, why, why could you be addicted? It's literally because your brain has been hijacked by that drug. And you now are needing that drug just to feel normal, just to feel that basic level of I'm okay right now. I'm not great. I'm just okay. I don't feel like crap if I'm not taking this. So back to the marijuana Again, the feeling of pleasure is how a healthy brain identifies and reinforces beneficial behaviors like eating and socializing. That's how our brain reminds us to do it again because it feels good. And our brains are wired to increase the odds that we will repeat those pleasurable activities. However, though, when the reward circuit is activated by healthy, pleasurable experiences, a burst of dopamine is you know, is released. And that causes changes in that neural connectivity that makes it easier to repeat that activity again and again without thinking about it. And that leads to the formation of habits. So that's what causes that addiction start to kind of process. Although it can happen with anything. Sugar happens a lot with sugar, but that's what causes kind of good habits versus bad habits. Doesn't really matter. It's interesting. You mentioned sugar and we don't talk about it a lot of society is not what this particular podcast is about, but I think that's one of the biggest things. And especially in my own personal life, I'll, I'll go look for the little bit of chocolate chips that are still in the cupboard. Yeah. And it's, and I think that's a little bit of an addiction. They did a study actually on, um, someone who was, um, you know, had ate a lot of sugar and someone who was addicted to cocaine and the same exact sections of their brain lit up when they both got sugar and cocaine or when, when each person. So, you know, a lot of people like sugar. I love sugar. I love yeah, chocolate. I, I um, it makes us feel good, but it is highly, highly addictive. Highly addictive. Because it's pleasurable. And that is what this whole process, that's kind of what this is about. When people take these drugs, it makes them feel good. And people like to feel good. They don't like to feel bad. Sure. And eventually your brain doesn't really know the difference because you know, it, you're, you're, you're totally affecting that reward pathway system with a foreign substance. And then now your brain is needing you to repeat that so you can keep on feeling good. Drugs like marijuana, they stimulate the, ner- the neurons in that reward system to release dopamine at much higher levels than is typically observed in natural rewarding stimulus like socializing or eating. And that surge of dopamine teaches the brain to repeat that rewarding behavior, which is what can lead to addiction. Even with marijuana, um, so again, there is a myth that it's not addictive. It can be addictive for a lot of people, especially if you start use at a younger age. Right. And that's a little bit of what we started off this Yeah, and then I totally rambled. Oh, no, that's that's okay. (laughs) I think it's all very good information, but it's really changing those pathways at a young age that causes an early addiction. Yeah. So people that start using uh, marijuana or cigarettes, even at a younger age, are much more likely to get addicted because at that younger age, you're connecting those pathways much quicker and you can become dependent on it much quicker than an adult would. And when you start using at a younger age, it's just natural that you're going to end up using more and more and more. That's just what happens. I mean, a, a pack a day adult smoker did not start smoking at 15 as a pack a day. They started with one cigarette, started with a puff, and then it went to maybe one cigarette and it just moves on because your tolerance again builds. And that is another whole concept. Coupled with the rewarding feelings and forming habits from that feeling, the brain of someone who misuses those drugs adjusts to this and it produces fewer and fewer neurotransmitters for that reward circuit or it produces less and less dopamine. Or it reduces the number of signals that can actually accept that dopamine when it's out. So as a result, the person's ability to experience pleasure from naturally rewarding activities is reduced. 
So that's why a person who misuses drugs eventually feels flat, they feel depressed, they have little motivation, and they're unable to enjoy things that were once previously enjoyable. And now in order to feel somewhat normal, that person needs to keep taking that drugs, um, which only makes the problem worse. And it can lead to that person obviously needing larger amounts to produce that high they used to feel, which we know is tolerance. And this is important to know. I went over all of that because this process happens very quickly in immature brains. And that can often cause a person to go on to other stronger drugs if they're not getting the benefits they once got. So that's probably why some people think this is a gateway drug or why it's been labeled that over the years. Yeah, exactly. And again, it's not black and white like that. It's not necessarily a gateway drug for a lot of people who try cigarettes as teens don't want to be smokers. Right. But there are certain things that might make a person more likely to become a smoker. Sure. Um, But that's a different, that's a whole different podcast. (laughs) So um, effects of marijuana use, specifically heavy use. So this is what we're going to talk about now, I guess, with the it's not really a drug. And it is a drug and it really affects a developing brain. And because of that, like I said, it can cause permanent damaging effects. Our young brain is fragile, especially when it's not developed. And it's not done growing. So when you bring in a drug to that foreign to that um, underdeveloped brain, it actually can cause abnormal brain shape and structure. And that interference with neuro with neurotransmitters, which are obviously vital chemical messengers in the body. Um, neurotransmitters are fundamental to our basic survival, and they regulate functions like our mood, digestion, muscle movement, heart rate, and other things. But compared with non-users, smokers of marijuana had changes in the blood flow, the shape, the volume and gray matter, and the density of their brain in two regions associated with addiction. The one region was the nucleus accumbens, and that plays a role in motivation, pleasure, and reward processing, so the things I've been talking about. And the other region is the amygdala, which is involved in memory, emotion, and decision-making. So those who smoked more marijuana had much more significant differences. Right. So... It changes, the, it changes the structure of your brain for a lot of different reasons. Obviously, the heavier use, the younger you start, is going to have more significant changes. Right. So it is a drug. It is something to take serious. And I think a lot, of, again, with this perception of risk, even a lot of adults think, well, you know, I did it when I was young, so I'm fine. What, you know, what's, at least you're not doing heroin. Sure. Um, it's, it's, it's a drug and it needs to be taken seriously, especially for youth. And the point of this was, again, no matter, no matter what, you know, teenagers and youth should not be using marijuana obviously there are always going to be caveats so there was a there was um, a young a young girl in california who had debilitating seizures sure and that was actually what helped kind of get everything started with medical marijuana and there now is a fda approved medical marijuana drug that helps treat these seizures gotcha so that's i mean that's different your basic you know regular teens should not be using marijuana as we finish up this myth Let's touch on THC amount because THC, as you said, is the is the drug is the portion of the marijuana plant that creates that euphoria feeling. But the amount of THC can change or can be very different depending yeah. on the product. And I would assume a lot of teens who might be interested, or even young adults, or shoot, adults even of my age who might be interested. We don't necessarily know about that. We don't know what level might be safe. Yeah. We, having not done any research, we might just go into a store and buy something, and who who knows? So, yeah, can you touch on THC levels and 
how that makes a difference. Yeah. So just like any medicine, there are certain amounts of, or there's certain levels of potency. So the same with nicotine, um, you know, cigarettes have a certain amount of nicotine involved and nicotine is that psychoactive part. When vaping came along, they increased that nicotine a lot. And so kids became addicted much quicker because when you get more of a something, you have a higher chance of being addicted much quicker. So marijuana, the marijuana industry took a page straight from the tobacco industry's playbook and they are developing stronger strains of marijuana, which with much higher levels of THC than even five to 10 years ago. So there are also different forms of marijuana. There's ones called like resins or or the concentration of THC can be above 95%. And to put that in perspective, in 1995, the majority of THC content was under 5%. So it it has increased tenfold. And different ways you take it, obviously, will it'll have different levels of THC. But the higher the level of THC, the higher chance of dependency. So it's interesting in my mind when you when you kind of say this isn't your grandpa's marijuana plant. Exactly. So when you think about you know the argument that's been made for years for many people who probably have been just smoking marijuana plants that were not genetically modified or they were using products that weren't necessarily modified and so now it becomes legalized and you have organi- or you have businesses that are saying all right we can sell it and we can sell it with a high THC so we can get people addicted and, and needing that high over again it's it's a game that you have to be careful about what side you're going to land on, exactly. which is why this education to me is very important. Yeah, I mean, obviously, and, and studies have shown that for most chronic, so the majority of people use medical marijuana for pain management, chronic sure. pain, and it has been shown to help with that. The levels of THC shown to help with that is between 5 and 10%. And so when we're going to medical marijuana stores or recreational stores and they're trying to give 95%, ask yourself some questions and ask why they're trying to sell you that. Uh, the tobacco industry, so sneaky, I could talk forever about them too. <laughs> um, they knew that if they got teenagers smoking, they would have consumers for life because they knew how the science worked. They knew if they had stronger nicotine levels, they would they would have people addicted quicker. So it's just really important that people who are using Again, this campaign is not about saying don't ever use marijuana. Right. That's not what this is about. This is about if you're going to use it, you want to make sure you're 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 weighing the, the the pros and cons, the risks versus benefits. But you're also you also have the knowledge to make the best decision for you. For example, if you smoke marijuana, you're going to feel the effects of that fairly quickly because it's going right to your bloodstream. If you have an edible, it could take an hour for the effects to take place because you need to digest it. Needs to go to your stomach, go into your intestines, go and be digested into your bloodstream, and then it goes to your brain. Digestion can take thirty minutes to an hour, and so unfortunately, some people who don't know that will have a have the ser- the recommended serving size, which I say in quotation because it's really not highly regulated. They can have a serving size and say, wow, I'm not feeling anything, and then have another one. And then all of a sudden, they have had way too much. And another myth is I can't overdose on marijuana. That's also not true. (laughs) You can have way too much. Uh, So it's just really important, just like when I go to the doctor and get my inhaler for my asthma, you know, I'm not going to be taking 80 puffs. I'm going to be taking the proper amount because even something that's supposed to be good can have negative consequences. Anything else you want to cover in myth number three? No, I think, you know, it's just basically the thing I want to get, I want to take from this after being very chatty about it is that um, 
it is a drug. It should be taken seriously, especially for teens. It can affect their thinking and problem solving. It can affect their memory and learning, their attention span, their coordination, and those effects could potentially be permanent. So it's, it's, it's really, it should not be in the hands of teenagers. We should not condone teen use. So when you do have marijuana as an adult and you are taking it, be responsible. You lock your guns up, you lock your other stuff up, you need to lock up that, that medical marijuana. Yep, I know you mentioned that here as a bullet point in myth number four. Yeah. So let's step into that. Myth number four, marijuana is from a plant, so it's not dangerous. Yeah. I read that one and I did a little Google search for dangerous plants. There's a lot. <laughs> there's, there's a lot. And, and I think the concept here stems from the idea that it's natural, mm -hmm. um, it's from the earth, and it's safe to use. And I think part of the reason that, especially some younger generations are getting this concept confused, is that we're being told to eat organically. We're being mm -hmm. told to eat natural foods. You know, stay away from your bleached flowers, stay away from processed foods. And so I think that's being misconstrued a little bit with the idea of like, well, this is a natural grown plant. But like I said, I did a little Google search and there's, you know, water hemlock plant, the deadly nightshade plant and huh. white snake root, which grows here in North America, all of which are just regular old plants that if yeah. consumed could kill you or make you violently ill, um, even cause permanent brain damage. A few of them were talked about in cases um, that they had amnesia and different such wow. issues like that. So... I think, like I said, the concept behind this myth is that it's being tied to this idea of healthy eating. Mm -hmm. And if it's from the earth, it's okay. But the, the fact is that's not quite where this, that's not quite the truth behind this. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I always would get this question, you know, but it's, it's a plant. Be like, okay, well, so is tobacco. So is heroin is derived from a, the, the poppy. It's a plant. Um, it's synthetic, obviously, so it's man-made, but it, it is derived from you know, that plant. So just because something is from the earth does not mean that it is not dangerous. Right. And so it, it, it's, it's important to know that. And again, I think a lot of the people get a lot of their information from ads and from the media that are trying to sell a product. Sure. You, we, you really need to get information from all sides. You can never take an advertisement at face value. I mean, I teach it to sixth graders. When you see when you see a commercial for a McDonald's hamburger, do you go to the McDonald's and get that burger that looks just like that? Right. It's it's it, it ads are can be deceiving. They are they are put in the best light, and they never show their negative sides. And if they do, it's spoken at a million miles an hour in very 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 tiny writing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so children and animals are at a much higher risk of accidental poisoning from marijuana. And 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 this this kind of concept is about this myth is all about. People that are using marijuana, you need to use it responsibly. You need to you need to lock it up, have it in a have it in a safe spot. So this is interesting. And um, before commercial or recreational marijuana was legalized in Michigan in 2017, there were only six marijuana related calls to the Michigan Poison Center. A year after legalization. There were 420 marijuana-related calls. That is quite the increase. And so, and, and again, only 25% were related to, to, to kids, to, to teens. But I also want to say, again, I, I understand that there could have been more calls because they were less afraid of getting in trouble. Yeah. So that's another issue we need to think about, too. So that might not be at face value. Because, you know, people, when I, when I was in college, when I was in the dorms, they said, if you are 
if you if you see someone who was under the influence and they need help, don't be afraid that you're going to get in trouble because right. you won't get in trouble because obviously you don't want someone to never get help because they're afraid of the consequences. So that could have been the case. There wasn't any more information on that, but that is undeniably a huge jump in numbers. Yep. And again, like I said, THC levels can often be a lot higher in products than necessary. So chronic pain, like I said, is a main reason for marijuana use. And THC concentrations less than 5 to 10% have been demonstrated to be effective in managing most pain. But researchers found that many marijuana products sold at dispensaries contain nearly four times as much THC. And some stores sell marijuana products even locally, um, when an extracts past 90%, and those are generally going to be your resins, your butter, um, your wax, those are highly, highly, highly concentrated levels of THC, where basically a serving size, again, in quotations, is like the eraser tip of a pencil. It's, it's very tiny. Yeah. Um, and, and also, another important thing is medical marijuana is often found in candies and, and, and cookies, brownies, other items that are very enticing to kids. And the packaging is very hard to discern. Kids can't read. Well, you know, they can at a certain age. Sure, but sure, young but. kids, they see a brightly colored thing or they see a cookie. They're not going to ask those questions. No. A dog, they're not going to ask those questions. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I can tell you right now, kids, my kids see a cookie they're not going to know any yeah different. and so um again there was a story you know a cookie a, 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 an edible medical marijuana cookie or a regular cookie um can have six servings in it so they literally want you to put that cookie into six servings and yeah. eat it what person is really going to do that you don't typically do that yeah it's not when it comes as a whole. I and, I, and I will say a lot of uh, the majority of marijuana users, medical marijuana users are responsible. Right. This is not about, you know, judging, you know, the medical marijuana use. We just need to be making, make sure we're always making the best choices um, that not only affect us, but those around us. So when a child under 12 ingests a marijuana product, obviously the effects are often much stronger, last longer, and are more severe. And there are currently no regulations for safe storage of medical marijuana, and there really are no um, warning labels or child-resistant packaging. Medical marijuana needs to be treated like any other medicine you don't want your kid to get into, and you need to keep it out of sight and out of reach. It, even me, if I saw a cookie on a table, I'd eat it. I mean, obviously, I'd probably ask some questions. <laughs> if it was like, But, you know, people, kids aren't going to ask these questions. Right. So we really need to be responsible about the storage of this product of this drug i think that's such a good point because i would imagine you know those that are bringing it into their home may not always keep it may not always keep that in mind no and even people um, with the best intentions accidents yeah. happen i know there's one last element that you want to touch on that's not directly tied to a myth but it's a medical condition that's been showing up more and it, it, to me it makes a little sense that it's going to show up more considering the potential use for mm -hmm. recreational use is is going up uh, so why don't you touch on that? Yeah, so this, with my research on this campaign, I came across something that I had never heard of, but it very much piqued my interest, and that is called um, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. I can never say it the first time, <laughs> but that is repeated and severe bouts of vomiting. Um, that's what hyperemesis is, but it's okay. based because of can cannabinoid use or marijuana use. So that the, the, the CHS, I'm going to call it, <laughs> um, that usually only occurs in daily long-term users of marijuana. 
And that is, so basically, daily long-term uses of marijuana, they generally start as teens. They start, they keep on using it. It usually doesn't show up until your 30s, but it's now happening to younger people because marijuana, THC is stronger. Um, so what happens, is, there's still a lot of, again, studies that need to be done because people say, well, why would it cause uncontrolled vomiting if we know that it also helps to nausea? Right. That is, that's so confusing. So what they do know, the scientists, is that THC binds to molecules found in our brain but it also binds to molecules in our in our digestive tract. Okay. The drug actually changes the time it takes for our stomach to empty, and it also affects our esophageal sphincter. So that's what opens and closes and allows food um, to get down into the stomach, but what also allows food to get back up when you vomit. So um, long-term marijuana use can change the way the affected molecules respond and lead to symptoms of that CHS. So they think some some something happens in your brain or digestive tract where just a, a switch is flipped, and it goes from helping with that nausea to just causing uncontrolled, severe bouts of vomiting. And I don't mean just a little bit. I mean it's it's severe. It's pretty uncontrollable. Experts are obviously still trying to learn exactly how marijuana causes CHS in some people because in the brain, like I said, marijuana is known to reduce nausea and vomiting, but in the digestive tract, marijuana seems to have the opposite effect, making it more likely to have that nausea and vomiting. And doctors are seeing it more in hospitals and, and it's becoming obviously more of a known thing, but it's still a relatively unknown Condition. Condition. Yeah. So with the first use of marijuana, the signals from the brain may be more important, which may lead to the anti-nausea effects at first. But however, with that repeated use, certain receptors in the brain may just stop responding to the drug in that same way, which would cause the CHS. So the only, only way to ever get rid of CHS is just to stop using marijuana. That is the only way. Even if you stop for months and then you go again, the symptoms right. will almost always come back always. So another myth is, well, no one's died from marijuana. No one's, no one can overdose. No one can get sick. That's, well, we're finding out that's not true anymore. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, severe vomiting and these other things could lead to dehydration and other, can you yeah. touch on that? Yeah. So CH, obviously anytime you're having severe vomiting that causes dehydration, electrolyte imbalance in your blood, and those can cause, obviously, if it's very severe, it can cause seizures, kidney failure, heart rhythm abnormalities, shock, brain swelling, and death. And there have been multiple deaths associated and contributed to CHS, including a 17-year-old boy in Indiana. And this is, you know, this is sad. He was young, and he, uh, him and his mom didn't didn't believe that it was associated to marijuana, and he and he kept using it, and he became super super sick, and those things happened. He had um, kidney uh, failure, and unfortunately, he, he passed away. Um, and other deaths were to you know two 27 year olds, a 31 year old. Those are young. That's young. Yeah. And so I I implore people who are using a product, whether it's you're buying a new car. Or you're buying marijuana. You need to know all the facts. You need to you need to weigh the risks and and the benefits. Obviously, CHS is pretty severe. I mean, it's pretty rare still. It's not going to happen to everybody, but it is a risk. So always always find every single piece of research. I mean, obviously you. you you find as much as you can. Obviously, make sure it's credible. You probably don't want to find research from a store that sells marijuana. They might not be always super honest. Right. If you want information that is honest and non-biased, you need to go to your doctor or go to um, websites at endin.gov or .org. Uh, th those are, that's the facts. What about the website for this 
um, for your initiative oh, here. Yes, very good. Um, a website you can also visit, which will talk more about these myths, is called weedingthroughthemyths.com. And that will talk a lot about what we talked about today as well as there is a whole bunch of resources on the back. So where I got this information from, a lot of studies, there's still a lot that has to be done study-wise. And I hope that we can figure out more and more. And again, for a lot of people that have quality of life issues and chronic pain and, and cancer, medical marijuana can be a wonderful, life, almost life-saving drug that can help them improve their quality of life. But with any drug, there is a huge chance of abuse and misuse. And so we really need to be aware of that and always make the best choices for ourselves and those around us. Such good advice. Is there anything else you'd want to leave with our listeners today? No, I think I, I think I said everything I wanted to say. It's just it was a pleasure to be here and able to share this information. And, you know, we'll always be learning more about this. So hopefully, you know, we can bring back more information. Plug that website one more time so everybody hears it one more time. Weedingthroughthemyths.com Awesome. Thank you so much, Allie, for being on the podcast today. Be sure to check out the website for some more information. Thanks for having me.